welcome to the UAUC talk show. Our goal with this show is to introduce you with the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Swenson. Welcome. Well, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Of course. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so how can I help today? <laughs> um, so my own background is um, uh, I've been, uh, my first job was, uh, I got out of undergraduate, was with the uh, Air Force, and then I worked with uh, NASA Space Administration for 16 years, and then I, uh, which is the government. Then I worked with the uh, Lockheed Palo Alto Group in California. And I've been at U of I since uh, 1996. And I officially retired in 2010, but I'm still here. <laughs> and I uh, work on research. Um, my work has always been involved with uh, investigating the upper atmosphere. This starts at about 60 uh, miles or uh, 80 kilometers and upward. Uh, we explore it with satellites. Um, as we look at luminous uh, regions uh, emitting information on winds and temperature, um, we probe it from the ground using lasers. We use nice cameras like that to take pictures of these regions. And um, it's important uh, for the, it's part of the atmosphere that satellites, uh, the low Earth orbit satellites, or LEO satellites we refer to, uh, orbit. And um, as they interact with the atmosphere, although it's very rarefied at these altitudes, it slows them down till eventually they re-enter. Um, so understanding the engineering of things as to what the density is and how fast that's going to happen was among the early studies we did and were uh, involved with at uh, NASA. And that's still important today for all the many satellites that are up there now doing communication studies and so on. So um, that's a bit of uh, my background. I've done some what we call in engineering simulations of things. We call it modeling and science, uh, where we take the physics of what we know about the problem and we put codes together to explain what should be the parameters of temperature and density with time and influence by the sun and all those things. Um, in engineering, we do the same thing with circuits. We simulate the components and expect them to follow the rules of the chips. <laughs> sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. <laughs> same reasons for studying the atmosphere. So the particular area that I'm focusing on is the area of turbulence. Uh, so we have a transition between the mixed atmosphere where uh, population of N2 to O2 in the lower atmosphere is about four to one. And it's all, that's the same all the way to 100 kilometers. Above 100 kilometers, it becomes uh, dominated by molecular diffusion and they separate by uh, a 
uh, molecular diffusion processes, and they don't follow the rules anymore, a different set of rules. So this area that this occurs at is called the turbopause, where there's a lot of turbulence. And uh, one uh, example for that is early on in the space shuttle days, as they would come up and re-enter, uh, they'd transition over the Rocky Mountains to land at Cape Kennedy. And uh, as they transition through the turbopause, 100 kilometers, as they descend, they experienced a lot of turbulence. So this is just one uh, manifestation of the turbulence that is an effect to real engineering life, but it also dominates the coupling of the lower atmosphere to the upper atmosphere in our models. And we need to understand what causes the turbulence um, and the instabilities and mixes uh, constituents, uh, minor species, atomic oxygen, for example, and it also acts to uh, transfer heat. So this is um, a research element that I've been, I started to do some in the early 60s as I certainly early uh, entered this field and I've gone back to it to some extent to solve problems we didn't have data for back then. But the satellites now provide some information that we just couldn't solve before. So it's uh, I'm fortunate to be able to be around long enough to see some of those fruitions take place. And um, like you, we were discussing a little while ago about writing proposals to, for educational processes, we do the same thing to describe problems we need to solve to get the resources to support students and um, parts and building hardware to solve these kind of problems. So that's a little bit about background uh, I've had in research. And um, I find it enjoyable to continue to do this uh, as long as I can remember <laughs> the uh, history of uh, what problems uh, have already been solved. But uh, a lot of problems are being worked on. And, I find I don't have to work on those because somebody else is doing that. Right. <laughs> I focus on things that others aren't working on and still need to be solved. So uh, that provides the motivation to uh, keep me focused on those kind of problems. So do you have some questions? That yes. So. Finding the right problems to work on, it's uh, something that is, is very important because that determines the type of work that you do. So can you walk us through yes. your methodology to find important problems yes. there? Yes, yeah. So I, you know, I'll start out with um, kinds of problems. I think as uh, students preparing ourselves for uh, life work, we sort out what kind of problems we want to work on. And we talked about uh, the larger uh, companies like the Lockheeds and the Bechtels. Uh, Bechtel builds the nuclear power plants. Uh, Lockheeds and Boeing build airplanes and spacecraft. These are large systems corporations that work and need teams uh, to solve big problems. So in those kind of environments, you will find yourself working 
on a team and often uh, maybe on several projects, but in a very small niche of contributing to a bigger problem. Um, in electrical engineering, others will sit down in a group of two or three and build a circuit board. Uh, somebody does the software and somebody does the hardware. C is a popular uh, code to work the code in, in the chips. And uh, that's a different kind of interaction as you design and put your uh, thoughts and processes together to work on those kind of problems. So one of the things I think you early on would like to do uh, is to kind of understand what, where do I want to go with work on, as an engineer, do I want to work on big projects or big systems or on uh, circuit boards and smaller kind of problems. So that's one thing. Um, but I think the other thing, and probably more important, as you go off to sort out what kind of engineering or what kind of um, area of study do you want to contribute to? Uh, do you want to work on, um, there are people that need uh, understanding with social problems, sociology kind of things. Do you need uh, others who want to solve engineering problems? And then when you go to engineering problems, are you more interested into electrical or mechanical or chemical? We have all these uh, different uh, paths to go off. And uh, I, I would say I, early in my career, I found I was, went off on a path to study the upper atmosphere, not because of a choice I had, but I found myself going into the military and they needed somebody to do meteorological prediction for airplanes. So I raised my hand and here I am. You know, so it, that led off to focusing on those kind of studies and, and so on. So I think um, in the end, the goals as a, you should uh, have are to uh, understand the kind of problems you uh, like to solve. And my theory is, is you like to solve them because you do well at that and you do well at what you like to do. Mm. So um, as you have a job in the future to enjoy what you're doing, what a deal. I've had the good fortune to do that in my career. And uh, as I've worked with senior design and electrical engineering, I try to work towards for students to think that way and to have an experience as you go out to your senior year is to create something in the lab, build some circuit boards or do something that you're passionate about. If you want to build a water pump for somebody who is in a third world country to solve those kind of problems or wheelchairs, go for it. And uh, I think uh, Others would go off and want to build something that would start a new company. Uh, I, I think uh, you should follow your passion and uh, it takes work. You have to study hard and it takes some study to get in and sort out what kind of a problem you're uh, going to want to really stick with. 
And uh, I also encourage that as you're uh, in engineering, for example, there are uh, opportunities to go off in the summer and try something with a co-op program or something. And often that leads to a permanent employment, but often you can go off and learn what you don't want to do. That's as important to learn what you do want to do. And the sooner you figure that out, the better, I think. Um, so anyway, that's a l hope that, that puts a little direction into that, uh, how you sort that out uh, as you go on with your educational uh, career. So, um, so Juan, what are you thinking of going on to do? Uh, so I'm going to turn it around. You know, <laughs> it's not often that I get into an environment where students ask me questions. I will usually ha get to ask them. But, right. Uh, <laughs> what do I want to do? Yeah. So I would like to. So multiple things, but I think uh, in, in, in the most general, broad sense, I would like to first, you know, do like love what I'm doing. Yeah. And then find ways to do that. I guess, I guess, uh, in, I guess I'm, I'm trying to keep it too general and I'm getting confused, but in a way, what I would like to do is solve problem through the alignment of incentives, uh, which is a philosophical way of saying solving problems through the creation of companies, movements, and really getting people together. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's a, it's a very interesting thing that uh, once you're able to align the incentives of different people, different countries, different everything, yeah. you can pretty much solve any problem. And solve any problem, right. You know, I think, um, I feel like, as you st alluded to, we're in a global economy. Um, we have uh, countries uh, often uh, focusing on uh, developing some technological skills. Uh, uh, India, for example, is uh, really found a niche in doing software in uh, many facets of application, for example. And uh, I think uh, organizing uh, is, takes a special insight these days to uh, take the breadth of not only what's across the street, but around the planet. Uh, so, uh, and I think especially in education, as we uh, learn from sitting in the classroom to uh, internet outreach where uh, the limitations are endless, you know, uh, there are no li uh, limitations on reaching people around the planet because everybody uh, normally has access to internet or most people do these days. So um, it's amazing that the communication that we have available to us is something to harness and that's certainly one of the tools you have today that we didn't have even a few years ago. So yeah, so that's a Nice goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, that's how I think about it, and, and, and we'll see how, uh, how it goes. But yeah. uh, I think as long as you do love what you're doing and follow your curiosity and 
I think everything, and follow your obsessions as well. Yes, yes. Everything will be, uh, will be fine. Yeah, I think it will be. And usually, as you we alluded to, you have to write some plan to um, get somebody to sign up to this so at least you can have something to eat along the way. In other words, you have a job. You know, so one thing, of course, in all of this is you, you want to make a living at what you're doing. Uh, that's uh, everybody, that's a sustenance everybody needs. And uh, it's a part of the equation. So where are you going with your career? I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I would, I'm still trying to find something that, like there are things that I really enjoy doing. And I, there are like a lot of things that I really enjoy doing. So I'm like finding a way to like unite them and see if I can like find a like common purpose in which I can like give my best to all of those fields. Yeah. Or if some that subset sense. that. Right, yeah, exactly. That, that that's you do it. Like I like engineering. I also enjoy making music. I also huh? um, love doing photography, right? So they're like, it's a it's a breadth of like a lot of things, yeah. and like there's not there's not one thing that I would want to do for the rest of my life. I like I cannot just commit myself. Okay, I would just do engineering, yeah. or I will just make music or any for example, right? So, like I'm, I don't want to stop doing the things that I do, but I'm actively trying to find ways in which. I can combine all these different fields mm -hmm. into, into doing something that can benefit a lot of people around the world. Yeah. I had a master's student uh, who's now at University of Colorado doing a PhD. Um, but we worked together for two, three years and I didn't know from uh, our interactions that uh, until we sat down with his parents at a Christmas gathering at the end of his master's degree, that he was an accomplished pianist. So he was following his passion of music, but um, as a, a dedicated hobby, and then the other part of his life was solving engineering problems, mm -hmm. and both of them he did very well. So you can make room for both of those, right. and I have some data points on that. We have many students in my experience with senior design and electrical engineering where this, we have uh, quite a number of students who are also interested in music, and maybe it has to do with waves. <laughs> mm -hmm. Electrical engineering, we're working with light waves and uh, uh, electromagnetic waves, and uh, acoustics and so on and, and sound are in just a slightly different family. Maybe there's some connection there, mm. but uh, it's, it's not an uncommon uh, marriage to have music and engineering as a right. paired thing. I had students in electrical engineering who, in their senior project, would go off and make a uh, invent a digital uh, instrument, which you can do these days with the breadth of software and tuning frequencies and mm. so on to emulate a um, number of musical instruments. So um, 
people follow a career doing that also. So there, there's a, a mixture that's direct to both software and solving those kind of problems. Right. So, what's been the what's been a project from the senior design class that you still think about until you know this is like a project that blown you away? Gee, you know I I. I'm always, um, you know, I, what I've learned and as I taught the course for many number of years, I should say, in electrical engineering we would have, uh, it's a large department, so we have um, three, four hundred students a year going through the class. So many, it, between the fall and spring semester, there's, with teams of two to three, there's 150 to 150 or 200 projects. And uh, the students, I've I found that I just get up there and my job is to open the door and uh, provide all the parts. We worked hard to have industry provide some free parts. And uh, the lab is uh, incredible, uh, incredibly um, supported with all the equipment and everything to do it. And uh, then the innovation is to come in and do it, do it. Yeah. And uh, but so at the be first day of the semester, or the first two days, we would invite industry to come in and offer some problems to solve. And so some students sit down. Oh, I, I want to go after that. Others come in and say, "Well, Charlie and I, we're going to do this, and we're going to." I've had students come in and build some, they, they had some special ice fishing technology. They were fishermen, their parents were, and uh, they had the same passion. So they would come in and uh, wanted to solve a particular problem, and they did. And they went off to market that through Bass Pro, it's a company out there that sells equipment. So uh, other another Usually one or two groups a year would end up in Chicago on a startup company. They would take it that far. Uh, so anyway, um, I think uh, having the creating the seeds and uh, getting the young minds together to often have a problem that they've faced that they might be able to do something with, but maybe with a partner, the two of them can do something. And you don't have to do everything in four months, because that's all we have time for in the class. You have time to buy some parts, put something together, and do a demonstration. Um, so take a step, you know, a step at a time. Uh, and I think uh, as you do that, and you might run into a wall where you can't go farther, uh, as I did in my early career and later in my career. I'm, this is a whole different uh, scenario for research, but 50 years later there's some data coming down the pipe where now I can solve a problem mm. that I couldn't before. But technology just is screaming, you know, and uh, technology parts that weren't available be a few years ago that are there today. and there you go, you know, so um, 
I, I, I think that's a, there are a lot of ways to come up with problems, but I think you jump in and try something you might like. Uh, and uh, you might change careers a few times, especially early in your engineering career. Students do that. But uh, if you do, uh, you've learned. So those are words from Swenson. <laughs> <laughs> Tell uh, us a little, little bit more about your time at NASA first, and then we can yeah. talk about Lockheed Martin, because I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. curious. Okay, well, um, I, I have to tell you how I got that job, yeah. if I would. Um, but I was, um, had gotten out of the military, and we'd, a friend of mine who I was uh, stationed with both decided to go to grad school, and we got into University of Michigan. We were sitting there. Play football with them, but you know we're all friends. <laughs> but anyway, I was sitting in the classroom with an uh, older gentleman that uh, worked for NASA that was uh, sent back to school to learn something that just NASA needed, and uh, he had a group back there, a small group in. Uh, what we call in space environment. Space environment is characterization and understanding of what the particles, the densities, the temperatures are that systems have to be exposed to, spacecraft in our case. So, and sitting there, he asked, well, what, what are you going to do when you get out of here? He said, well, I said, I don't know. He said, well, how about coming to work for me? So, after I finished up, I said, fine. So. Off I went, and I uh, worked in a space environment group there for the first 10 years of my career, and, uh, or eight, something like that. And uh, in that case, we were working on models, simulating densities, and working with early modelers to come visit and provide expertise. Uh, but much of the data that was available then is still um, valid today. It's still pretty good at predicting the lifetimes of satellites, for instance, that are used in some of the models. Um, so that was, um, so I found myself working in a large system uh, with the Apollo, end of the Apollo program, which was uh, just at the beginning of going off to the moon. So what, uh, what year is, uh, is this? This was 68. So, like right before the moon landing. Moon landing, yeah. yeah. So, the first, uh, so I wasn't there 30 days, and my boss said, you know, he's, so at that time, um, the engineer in charge of NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama uh, was uh, leading the Apollo program and the rockets to the circle the moon and then to later on Apollo 11 to land and then Apollo 13 was another story if you've seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> a lot of adventure going on there. But you have to understand this was back in the day where computers yeah. were crude or a few big ones around. Um, we had a in our group, as I found myself at, with this uh, group, group, we had a PDP, GE PDP-11. It filled a room about this size, 
had 8K memory, and you couldn't hear your, you had to put ear plugs on to go in there because the fans were cooling this thing mm. and making all kinds of noise in there. It was just incredible. But can you imagine uh, today, uh, it, you know, we, we, you had uh, to solve a problem on that, we had to bring in a card deck this big and put it in a reader. And uh, if you made a mistake, you had to do it again the next day. You know, so things were very slow. And mm. going to the moon and these guys, the guys uh, that put the controls for the attitude control systems and everything, it was all analog systems. Analog being uh, just sensors and uh, simple machines. And they had to work, of course. Mm. Um, but uh, that they, they mm. did. And so I got to go to the meeting where Von Braun had uh, assembled 40 people in a room to decide that they were ready to send the first Apollo vehicle off to circle the moon. Apollo 8, I think it was. Yeah, Apollo 8. And he says, um, he came in and said, okay, we, first of all, we got to be tart. We can't uh, dilly-dally around here. We got to just answer the questions and everybody can get back to work because uh, uh, we didn't need to sit around and waste money and in a room and not get something done. And so two guys, three guys came in the room, the pretty big guys, and they were the kind you would have working on your car, I say. You know, they had some white jackets on to cover up their kind of greasy clothes. And they'd just come back and flown up from Cape Kennedy. And so Dr. Von Braun turned around and said, Charlie, did you change the actuator out a number five engine like we talked about? Yes, sir, we did this. We measured the volts. We did tried it out. It works fine. So Charlie, Von Braun asked Charlie directly. He didn't ask his boss or boss's boss or boss's boss's boss. Mm. He asked Charlie. He was very hands-on manager. And uh, so he personally knew that every system on that bird, as we called them, uh, space or rocket was going to work. And it did. So um, that was kind of a lesson in life for me is that keep things simple and... Uh, Stay focused and <laughs> get your get your job done. Right. And uh, and so uh, that was uh, uh, early lesson in life. And of course, uh, it was a very different experience or, or rewarding experience to excuse me to uh, be in that space center at that time with the exploration of the Apollo program. And that followed on by Skylab. If you don't know what Skylab was, in 1972, they took the stage of the Apollo, um, I think it was Apollo, uh, uh, or Saturn 1 uh, vehicle. And once it got to orbit, they blew the gas out of it and made it into a, a spacecraft for habit, inhabiting uh, man to stay in orbit, and uh, then they attached the uh, Apollo telescope mount to study the sun to the front of that. 
And uh, that went on for several years. Um, and uh, we were, people from our center were flying down to uh, Houston at the time, and they would have a room full of people supporting that mission day and night. Everybody had a screen in front of them to see if the oxygen was leaking from something or all the sensors that made you uh, sure that the systems were working and to solve problems if it wasn't. So in today's world, we put 100 screens on a single big monitor and one or two people sit there and look at them. So it's the days have changed, but it all came from the approach to monitor uh, sensors, and uh, they still do that today. So I, I found that very rewarding. Then later on, after I finished my PhD uh, at NASA, I w w worked to the uh, space science uh, group where um, I worked on um, magnetospheric physics uh, problems, and uh, we got involved in flying uh, some payloads with uh, some folks at Lockheed uh, on space shuttle. And later I moved out to Lockheed and worked, uh, continued to work on those kind of systems. I found myself interested in the science more than the uh, systems themselves, so I grew into something that I liked better. Mm. So uh, not that I didn't enjoy what I was doing, but I found I could make a better contribution doing uh, 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 some processing of what the sensors were telling us. So, uh, so that kind of talks about the NASA days and then a transition in 83, I think. I made the transition to Lockheed and Palo Alto. And before we get there, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about you know, meeting uh, people like Bun Brown, but also the general atmosphere of, of NASA, because that you know going to the moon was one of the most ambitious uh, projects we've had, and you know, probably in the history of the of the United States. But also, yeah. you know, they had a big project like that, and they actually did it. Uh, yes. Um, so how? Just, I, I would just say, you know, it was. Um, I think it came from the motivation and the direction came from. Uh, President Kennedy in '63, I believe, it just set, put, the, put this in motion. By the way, it's only four years before that that NASA was formed in '59. Um, so uh, there was some focus to have a, a very ambitious, ambitious uh, undertaking uh, in '63, and then to accomplish that by. 69. That was only six years. So the, but you have to understand the legwork for all that, or the groundwork, came from the fact that the missiles uh, and the testing came from the uh, V2 rockets that were captured from uh, Germany after World War II, and that team was the, part of the von Braun team that was now here in the U.S. to take that technology and keep building on it to make it uh, something uh, to go to the moon. So I would say that when 
Kennedy got up and made the speech to charge for the moon, I think, I'm sure, he'd already talked to Von Braun to have some insight that we're, we can do this thing, you know. It wasn't just hip shooting that right. you're starting without any technology or background. You have to have the wherewithal to say that you've got the parts. And yeah, with this parts and doing this testing and getting there and this kind of thing, you can make it in that time frame. So, um, but, but I, I'm still marvel today at the fact that even in the lander that came off the Apollo 11 that uh, they uh, used joysticks to, <laughs> it's, it's like a model airplane. You know, you were flying and uh, almost running out of gas before you got down right. and put it down. So there were a lot of very close calls. I'd say it was a lot of luck uh, as well. But, uh, and good fortune for everybody that it worked out the way it did. Um, and a lot of smart people backing people up, sitting on doing the groundwork uh, in the systems engineering to get it ready and understanding what's reliable, what has to be redundant. Redundancy is something if this doesn't work, then there's another switch to make things happen. Or there's, uh, but they only had one fuel tank, one engine, you know, on the lander. And then it has to work to come up as well. I think it's similar in today's world, the innovations that have gone off to um, land a rocket on a barge out in the water after they've used it mm -hmm. by SpaceX, for example. That technology is what you need to have work for you if you're going to go to the moon, land, and then have some way to come back again, or Mars. Right. And so I think over the past number of years, the innovation since the early days of rocketry in the 60s and the Apollo program is the innovation of computer technologies to land a a rocket that can then be used. By the way, one of our number of our CubeSat students from early years here at U of I are out at SpaceX working on flight technologies, power supplies, all kinds of things. It's uh, uh, one of the early students is Mike Dabrowski. He uh, we had a CubeSat first one a uh, call it a 2U, two one-liter cubes. It was uh, to launch on a Russian Dnieper rocket. So he and another grad student, Pravesh Thacker, flew off to with our satellite to um, Russia. To, it had been integrated already to launch, but they went off to the launch. And unfortunately, the rocket tanked. It went up and then came back. So it was a very disappointing. Uh, it wasn't in anybody's control uh, here or maybe there. You know, it's just the risk management one does. So we tried a, a big issue in spacecraft engineering is managing risk and minimizing, of course, in spacecraft uh, involving life support systems, 
there is uh, minimal risk by making things redundant, and uh, NASA has done this for a long time, uh, starting with the Apollo program, and has learned and written things down. So the younger engineers going in uh, don't have to learn uh, mistakes again. We had a big issue with uh, problem early on in the 70s and early 80s when people decided not to to save a little bit of money and not to test as much. And uh, that less led to uh, 51L, the catastrophe we had on space shuttle. And uh, there was a big commission afterwards to not do that again. You need to test, test, test. You need to put things together. You can run a simulator and it can tell you it's going to work, but you don't know until you turn it on and try it. Right. We have a Space telescope up there that um, the first one <laughs> that had to have a visit from astronauts to fix it because they didn't test the focus on the telescope in a vacuum chamber. The new telescope that's sitting out at L1, amazing. It's uh, nobody can go out and fix that. It's sitting out there in a million miles, but everything that was put together with the 200-some subsystems that had to work to make that thing work, did. And uh, that's amazing. None of that had to go into vacuum chamber to test for the focus, of course. It could all be tested aside from that. And it was. So, But it didn't work. So um, those are the kind of... Uh, jobs that are exciting and one can uh, work to find them, uh, find yourself into, uh, which many of our students have done. But, you know, I, I would say that, you know, you have to go off and do the co-op programs and be pretty good. They're, they're very fussy as you go to SpaceX or to NASA, I should say. Um, you, you, you have to um, pay your dues and work hard, that's, <laughs> uh, you know, start step by step. Step by step, Yeah, we, a we, step at a yeah. time. And you, you take a step and do what you can and you see a way to take another step, you do. <laughs> but usually after you've learned quite a bit from the first step. Dr. Uh, Lembeck, yeah. uh, the, the professor who runs uh, four, yes. four, four, 491, yeah. he, he has a, program where they're, he's trying to do a national program uh, for, uh, for building vertically landed rockets for students. Yes. And, we're, and uh, us two and some other people, we're going to be building a, a vertically landed uh, rocket. Uh, well, a, model, a model one, right? A model one. Model. But uh, of course, but uh, I think we're, it's, it's going to happen in October. So once we finish it, we'll, we'll send you a, a photo and a oh. video. <laughs> I, I come, do you actually have something to test? Are you going to do, go out to a field and yeah, try so it? Yeah, so it's happening in, in Run Tools. I'll so. come and see it. If you like. Okay, <laughs> if you like. That would be perfect, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I would love to. I'd uh, like to be there. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, five teams from around the state. Yeah. And we're all, we're all going to be participating, just building yeah. the rock from scratch, doing all the software, yeah. and testing it with the drone from 30 feet and dropping it and see if, and yeah. and see if it lands. See, yeah. Well, it'll land. <laughs> you know that, but how? <laughs> That's the trick. Yeah. Uh, it's a 
yeah, I think because you, um, y you can do it. You know, you, you have to um, have the software that's working fast enough and the sensors that are working, the attitude good enough and have the response time to make decisions and thrust and so on to uh, accomplish the mission. Mm. Yeah, so um, that'll be uh, a key technology to go off to the moon and certainly to Mars. And uh, I can imagine when one does go off to Mars, you'll have three rockets that will land and maybe two of them will and one of them will be able to take off again. You know, you'll have to play the numbers. Um, and the rockets can fly there and land and be ready before you even go. That's the firm way of, assured way of uh, taking such a, a expedition. Would you want to go to through the moon? You know, I, I should say I have a good friend who uh, was an astronaut on space shuttle, uh, Lauren Acton. He was a solar physicist uh, mission scientist that flew in 1985 on uh, space shuttle doing a solar experiment. And I, I had the opportunity back then to, um, to uh, think about it, to apply, because we were flying some experiments. And I, you know, at the time I had the family and I just didn't have the, mm. I, I, I thought other people were stepping up and doing a good job and I, it wasn't in my thing, right. but uh, that's me. <laughs> but uh, it, it's going to be done, and uh, I think getting to the Mars, you know, it's a six-month flight when it's in the proper uh, time of the year when the proximity to Earth and Mars is close enough, and. Uh, you know, so that six months, you can imagine, is a pretty doable m mission uh, to and from. And uh, not impossible, but uh, ambitious. So it, it'll happen. Do you think that's the... So, like, the moon landing was... We talked about, like, was the most ambitious goal, right? What's... Do you think Mars... Do you think we're treating Mars as that goal right now? Or do, we, do you think we have that energy propelling us to get get us there um, like the kind of energy that we did during those years yes I, you know I think you have to go back to the moon just to get your feet wet you know just have to go in and try these things and of course the moon is a piece of cake compared to Mars Mars has got an atmosphere it's very turbulent to land on it when we've landed these rovers they wrap them up in a balloon and let them bounce mm. Because it's uh, windy, you know. It's just, it's not even the same as landing on the Earth. Right. Uh, it's a uh, it's a challenge. Um, the Moon has no atmosphere. Um, it has other issues, of course. Right. But um, it's uh, you don't have those kind of uncertainties in uh, your, your risks uh, mm -hmm. with your project to land this rocket are going to have winds and potential uh, risk that uh, you wouldn't have on the moon, you know. So, um, but uh, anyway, that's, 
I, I think you have to do the step. And, uh, and, and I think that's what is going on, is it's a step to demonstrate. And then once you demonstrate, um, you, you are in a position to do the next step. If you have the wherewithal and it's within the priorities of doing other things. I'm very big, we have other big problems. We have climate, we have to address things like this. And, uh, but you, you have to, um, the, the goals of going off and doing ambitious uh, endeavors like going to Mars, uh, it's, um, it has a lot of other side benefits to doing it as a motivation to youth to get involved and to just be able to understand those kind of ambitions are straightforward to do. I should say not straightforward. You can do them, right? But, um, wow, you know, why not? Yeah, I know. So that's part of, you know, but, but we know we have other big problems, big, big issues with climate, and we have to also step back and be able to look these problems in the eye and figure out how to deal with them. Um, and uh, it's, it's not just in the U.S. and uh, Louisiana and Miami Beach with rising sea levels. We have Pakistan, Bangladesh. We have global, real uh, disasters already, and uh, it, it's tough. So I have to be in perspective. Yeah. But uh, it will happen, and I think uh, we'll, we'll probably reach Mars before uh, 2030, hopefully. Well, 2030s. Yeah, 22 now, eight more years. I, I that's pushing it, <laughs> but could could be. Yeah, they. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the uh, the Starship rocket. They're testing it. Uh, I think they're doing the orbital launch in November, just to see, uh, just getting the rocket to orbit and then seeing seeing if it works, uh, and then if. Yeah. That works, I think, uh, yeah. the moon and then Mars will be in the horizon. Yeah, well, now you these, um, yeah. And uh, there are a number of um, rocket programs uh, going on to participate in this kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, um, but, yeah, so so I think uh, it, it's, it, it's a, uh, Certainly, everybody looks at it as a goal that's it's doable and important. It's putting it in perspective to other important goals that we have. And I think we can learn from it to learn how to put up some of these other goals and look at those in the eye. And I think um, that might be one of the benefits to go to Mars. It, it's a big endeavor, big goal, but let's look at some of these others as a group, as a systems engineering problem. And um, 
big thing is renewables, energy, electrical, wind. Uh, they're coming along. We know how to do them. Yeah. You know, throughout your life, you've, uh, we're talking about goals, right? Yeah. And throughout your life, you've uh, achieved many things uh, that many wish they, they, they would have and, and they could have mm -hmm. done. But uh, now you're here. You, you've retired in 2010 and you have different goals now. But uh, what goals do you have for your life in these days? Well, um, you know, I'm enjoying family and uh, I think uh, it's. Uh, in my career, I've traveled a great deal uh, with our experiments. We've flown all over the Pacific, I've been to South Pole, been to the aircraft flying over the North Pole, Greenland, you know, been in the Arctic, at the equator. Uh, we've done a lot of exploring. But uh, as I've traveled with uh, my wife, Sandy, we um, have a different appreciation to enjoy something a little different. We just got back from Alaska. So I do enjoy that, and I enjoy family. And uh, I also enjoy, I have some woodworking friends of mine are both involved with uh, working some uh, workshop things, and that's more of a mechanical engineering. If I wasn't on the path I was, I would have been a mechanical engineer, I think. He's uh, one. Yeah. yeah. So um, I enjoy that. I do some chemical stuff with uh, the work I do in the upper atmosphere. Chemistry is important. So um, I would say in the, when you breath out to the kind of problems that I have, it's you have to have a breadth of understanding in our atmospheric work. It's, you know, chemistry, we know dynamics, that's the uh, winds and so on. We know thermodynamics. And it's the coupling of many of those things that let us solve problems uh, that are system uh, intense. And uh, so anyway, I, I do still enjoy working on that. And as I mentioned before, I work on problems that others aren't too interested or they've put it aside and uh, aren't looking at it the same way I do. So anyway, that's, uh, I enjoy that. Um, and I enjoyed going up to uh, northern Wisconsin where I have family and doing a little fishing. Um, some years ago, we would go up and uh, canoe in the Boundary Waters. If you haven't done that, there's a set-aside area in northern Minnesota and Canada where there's just uh, lakes and connections to lakes that are set aside to canoe on with no motor boats and things. Uh, I've enjoyed doing that, and now uh, we still do a little bit of that at least once a year. So you go camping out and enjoying the outdoors, the stars. Incredible to see stars when there aren't any street lights around. Right. That's a special yeah, yeah. treat. No light pollution. No light yeah. pollution, yep. So those are things to uh, enjoy. Um,
and to as you go up to those uh, we go up to the boundary waters for instance and at night you can lay down and watch the satellites fly over for that hour after sunset when the sun's still illuminating them and you can see them uh, illuminated uh, space station shows up like a big guy up there <laughs> but it's uh, a good place to take your camera yeah there you go uh, so you've I'm really curious so you're, you've lived through like so many influential phases of the of the last like century right and um, what has been like an era or like a phase of human civilization that you still come back to or like you that has been very influential for you personally well um, Gee, that's a toughie. I, I would say, um, you know, I've always loved to learn. And of course, going to NASA and learning, uh, that was a huge learning experience. Um, and uh, going off to Lockheed, I worked with a group uh, that uh, had a different focus and different connection to work as a team that I really enjoyed doing. Um, and then coming to the University of Illinois, what a privilege, you know. So here, I get to work with youngsters who have young minds, who are interested to solve problems and interested to get a little steering. And uh, I, I found this to be a real privilege in my career and uh, I, I think it's one of the most enjoyable parts. And it, maybe it's because it's the senior part of my career. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, uh, I, it's, I've had an enjoyable uh, career along the way. I, I can't say. It's hard to pinpoint one thing more than another. But I do enjoy this latter phase. I enjoyed teaching senior design and putting the steering into it and seeing the young engineers go off with some additional experiences that let them shape some of their career goals and uh, make them a more educated person. I think that's what we're all about is learning and paying attention to uh, what we can learn from others, reading the textbooks. Some of it may seem kind of boring at times. And boy, I picked up a paper and read it over and read it again and read it again. And, you know, it's uh, <laughs> and probably the sixth or seventh time after being motivated because I really needed to understand something. I went back and finally put the wherewithal and the focus in it to pick out what I really needed to know. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, I have my own way of uh, reading other people's work. I'm a, I, I skim a lot. We all do in this business because there's a lot of information coming out in the literature, so it's uh, uh, always learning how to learn from 
others. It's important. Does that somewhat address your problem or the question? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there is there something that you do you have a, a an opinion or, or or a thought that most of your colleagues uh, would disagree with you on? A perspective or something like that? Uh, I I don't I'd have to think about that one. I don't I think we all have different approaches to um, problem solving. Um, I, and I think we all come out of a, a different path as to what creates, a, in my case, an atmospheric researcher. Um, so I, I feel like I've had a, a very varied exposure to building hardware, software, um, and many facets that others haven't had the value to. Others of my colleagues will s learn only from by building a model, and their career is to sit in front of a computer and just do that. That's not me. <laughs> uh, I do that uh, for four or five hours a week, but it's not what I do for 40 hours a week, you know. So, so it's, uh, I think for me it's the breadth of information that's collectively let me focus off and contribute to some specific problems. That makes a unique approach. Um, and I think there aren't many people that get the exposure that I've had. So I feel fortunate in that regard. Um, yeah, I think that's, very, that's a very interesting point because there seems to be a general belief, um, at, at least in academia or I guess in, in, in our circles, that uh, there, there needs to be a heavy focus on specialization and you know you should do the most specialized thing you can. And sometimes that, that's true. But some problems, like the one you were mentioning, you do really need a breadth, breadth of knowledge. Yeah, you're exactly which, right. Which yeah. is, you know, that breadth of knowledge is in, in a way its own form of specialization. Yes, but I think you need a specialization, you know, one of those specializations needs to be uh, deeper uh, th than uh, in order to contribute to the breath, I think. I, mean, I don't know how to say that, but, um, you know, I think you're right. I think you, um, it, it's the breath that gives you some of the insight to... Um, directions in a problem. And you might not be able to have the depth in a particular area to solve the problem by yourself. Thus, you bring it in. You can uh, have a team member. I mean, we have teaming in our area of rural research, for instance. Some of us know about the particles and how deep they penetrate and where the energy is being dumped in others of electric fields that are moving the ions horizontally, for example. And it's a team effort that can sit down and put a model that involves both. So um, 
But somebody has to sit down, and you have to have enough combined focus and breath to stress the problem. And of course, and as we go off and do masters and PhDs, we really focus on specific problems. And a PhD problem in our business uh, is a unique opportunity where you go off and spend four or five years just getting into the depth of one very specific problem, but with breadth of modeling and data and so on. So it's a, that PhD experience is what brings you into the research domain. But as an undergrad, uh, you, you still have a focus to decide and what interests you. And I would say that the engineers that have come out of undergraduate that are out at SpaceX have no PhDs. They are innovative undergraduates that have come out of uh, aero or electrical engineering that are passionate about space systems. And so, uh, so at any rate, uh, you find your niche. I think it's fortunate now as you have the ideas that there are companies that are involved with space exploration like SpaceX and rocketry and as well as NASA all have opportunities to get involved with and all have a niche and uh, it'll be an exciting next 15 years I'd say. I'm going to give it more like 15 years to get to Mars. <laughs> yeah. But maybe one, if you two guys get focused and land that rocket in a couple of weeks or months, <laughs> you might Steer set the, the seeds <laughs> to go off and do it, you know? Well, once the rocket lands, we'll, we'll, we'll take a video and, and we'll send it to SpaceX. <laughs> there you and, go. And, and show that well, we can do it. <laughs> I, would say I have uh, some colleagues out there who are recruiting here at the U of I. They love to come in, and uh, they're looking for good people. And they will look for young minds who uh, can make a contribution and... Uh, willing to work hard and so on. It's always hard work. What's what's a piece of advice you would give to some, to a student or like, let's say your own grandchildren, for example, who are who are going to be the bear like the bearers of the seeds that we plant today, and like we're going to take whatever happens to the human civilization forward. Um, yeah. Starting today, what 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 advice would you give them? Oh boy, um, I think uh, I, I would. You know, I I think the best thing is to prepare. The, you, you, I think the youth have to solve your own problems, the problems that are facing you, and many of these have been a situation that have been uh, put there by previous. Uh, civilization, us, you know. So uh, you you have to go off and learn and provide attention to uh, 
solve these problems and uh, do the best you can. But you have to get involved to do that. And some of it might be uh, going to the moon, going to Mars, might be on climate, it might be on relocating people because there's shifting mobilization. Crops is a big one. See, agriculture. Hmm. Uh, we're going to find already where these certain bugs are coming around that we don't know what to do with and temperatures changing. You can't grow this crop here anymore. You have to grow it there. Um, growing crops in a greenhouse or in a what, what do you call them? Growing in the hydro farming? Hydro, uh, hydro hydroponic? Hydroponics, yeah. Jeez, all kinds of stuff going on. That's, uh, it, it's going to be a very different world, but um, the, the youngsters of tomorrow will be the ones to be there or not, you know? I think it's some tough problems coming up, but uh, I have a lot of faith in uh, humanity and uh, the willingness and ability to go after problems. Sometimes it uh, wanes a bit, but I think uh, it, it's, uh, it's going to be important for you youngsters to step up and address big problems. They'll always be there. What's, what's a tale as true as time, which you would say, like, regardless of how much the society changes, how much our problems change, that, that that will always stay true to who we are as humans? Well, that's, I, yeah, that's a big one. Uh, how we govern ourselves, you know, how we stay focused, she, you know, in leadership, that'll be a big one. Um, it, it it depends on how fast things go, you know, I think, especially with food, how you, you know, everybody needs a, a food to eat and a place to live. And uh, I think a big problem is going to be is can you still do that on the planet we have? Um, but I, I don't know. It's just uh, th those are big problems that... Uh, I, I have to think about those some more, but uh, I, I think that will be uh, big choices to make with um, depending on how fast technology and ability to feed the people and how you do that and how you manage that with uh, some government or somebody in charge. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you understand space systems and you know space in in a good way. And over the last year or so, there's been a lot of reports from Congress and from you know the general space uh, community as a whole about the question of, of aliens from. What you've seen from what you know, do you think there are aliens out there? Do you think they're real? Like, what do you think of UFOs and all those things? Well, well, I think there's certainly, I, I do believe there's uh, 
we, we do know from evidence in astronomy now on other planets and other solar systems that there is water, there mm -hmm. is the sustenance to have life. Um, so it's hard to, uh, I, I do believe that there's, there's some sort of critter someplace other than on just our planet. Um, I, I don't believe, I, I find it within the rules of physics and the sp speed of light and so on that I find it difficult to comprehend that somebody can move at the speed of light and if you could that you've traveled for a billion years to show up here or a hundred thousand years. So I, I find that uh, I haven't found the evidence to <laughs> that I would uh, sign up to that would uh, support that there are aliens that we have to worry about or th that um, come into this system yet. That's that's still based on our current understanding of science. Like it is, yes. Yeah. So, who knows what? Yes, like, uh, there can be ways in which physics works that we still don't know, or certainly can be. Or you know, and then just what we consider as life, maybe somebody can exist for a hundred thousand years, right? Where they exactly. Can rep reproduce and show up, but. I, that's just too far out of my right. thought domain to <laughs> think about. When I first got into, I was even in high school at the day, there was a, a book that came out of, um, on space aliens, this was in the early 50s, UFOs. I think the title of it was UFOs. And uh, boy, we, I worked in part-time in a dry cleaner, well, I was going to high school, and boy, we we pooled our money and got a copy of this book and passed it around. And it was a lot of pictures from people had, uh, and of course, m most of these you could dismiss by being somebody taking a picture of a saucer that you <laughs> throw or something. You know, it was just. Uh, but it's it's fascinating to think about and. Uh, um, put the, to, I should say, ponder. Um, but I, I'm just personally not a believer that uh, I could come up with other explanations that in most everything that um, would might be hard to swallow but not as hard to swallow as stepping out of the bounds of physics that I know about. Right, yeah. right. We'll find out. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, <laughs> yeah, someday. Yeah. We have a section called overrated or underrated. So how it works is that we give you a topic, and then you tell us whether you think it's underrated or overrated. Okay. So the first one is the Artemis One program, or the and, and the rocket SLS. Uh, underrated or overrated? 
so the Art Artemis. Yeah, rock. the Artemis program for NASA. Yeah. That that's gonna go to the moon now. Yeah. They have like two failed launches now, with the SLS, yeah. the new rocket that they build. Yes. Um, so I you have to explain what this uh, SLS. Yeah, the the SLS is the name of the of uh, the rocket. And yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I should just say that you know, when you go back into rocketry with uh, liquid propulsion, which they have, it's all cryogenics and the problems they've had with our similar things that we have in the lab with running uh, very cold fluids through mechanical pipes. And they, it's it's not simple, and how you do that on a rocket that's going to carry the fuel and do it again as a lander, I probably wouldn't do that. You know, space shuttle, the shuttle used uh, rocket uh, solid uh, booster propulsion, which uh, is stuffed stuck in a tube, <laughs> and. Uh, like a firecracker that um, implodes, or excuse me, uh, burns fuel. Uh, I I just well well we'll just see uh, how that how this all works, but um, I I must admit I haven't followed this that closely to. Understand, but uh, wish them success to do it. Um, and uh, it's a tricky business. I mean, it's it, but you have to really pay attention to these fundamentals of thermal engineering and running cryogenics through tubes. <laughs> it's tough, and it it always has been. Um, that was a big part of the Apollo program and running fuels into the rockets. Um, and it hasn't changed, I think. So is that helpful? Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I do think, um, and there seems to be a lot of rumors and reports that uh, I, they, they don't think they're going to be able to, uh, to to launch it because a lot of things are, uh, the, the engineering, it's not, it was a lot of flaws. Yeah, if you, you listen to the flaws, and then, yeah, if you're going faster, you, I think in engineering management, you, um, you you can't talk, you know, you really have to have your ducks in a row to make sure you're going to be successful. And I'd talk about it after I filled the tanks and went, you know, I, I don't know. Because you, 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 engineering, you can't rush it. You have to go back and solve the problems and then do it carefully. And is it a perceived problem? These Some of the problems didn't seem to be the sensor rather than the, uh, a real problem with leaking. Um, so you have to, you know, have to get through all of that and it's um, a tough problem. Next one. Um, hypersonic air flight. Like you've worked with yeah. a lot of satellites and the uh, like, how it performing the upper atmosphere, right? And hypersonics is something that's starting to like develop and like yeah. come yeah. come more. Um, I would say coming more in the public realm, yeah. right? So just hypersonic flight. Yeah. Uh, 
big future, I think. Yeah. That's real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think, uh, I, I'd say really there needs to be some um, focus to, in engineering to um, explore it. I think it's, um, it's, uh, should be valuable in a uh, number of applications. Right now, yeah, it's more, right now it's more defense-based. Like yeah. if you look at most of the hypersonic, like, like jets being made or like just missiles, right? They're mostly... Yeah, I think eventually you're right. I mean, you're, you're going to have um, uh, potential for hyper, hypersonic. I think you're going to also see a lot of valuable value in electrics coming along. Right. And uh, fast rail uh, to be learned from aerospace mm. as to how you do that. So there's a breadth of things to go for that would solve, uh, would be address people moving right. in the future. You grew up in Wisconsin, you have a house in Wisconsin, yeah. and you'd love to spend time there. Yes. So Wisconsin, overrated or underrated? Oh, no, it's, I, I, I rate it pretty highly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's, um, the, where I'm in the northern part of the state where it's uh, north of the agronomy area, so in the lakes you don't have runoffs from the nitrates and so on. And, uh, you know, in the, we talk about pollution and, and so on. We get a lot of contamination in the rake, uh, lakes uh, all over from coal plants that just get, the effluent gets rained out to all the lakes and the oceans. Ocean is a big problem, and uh, I, oh, excuse me, con contaminating the oceans with plastics is a huge problem. Uh, the uh, uh, plastics break down into microplastics and get picked up and into the rains, get ingested into the fish, um, plug up lungs, all kinds of things. So. Uh, big problems um, that need to be addressed. And it's in a cri cluster of things that has to do with a, being a huge uh, food resource for the planet that uh, I was just in Alaska and we're seeing uh, what used to be viable um, streams that the salmon would come in and um, go through the reproduction process, laying eggs and so on. And some of those are just drying up where there's no salmon coming in any longer. Right. What's going on? Well, it's a biological problems that are, there's a disease amongst the salmon is one of the problems. There's other, there's a, another critter coming in from the Atlantic that's, um, a crab that's eating, uh, contaminating species. So we, we have to look things in the eye and r really address things and manage them. Otherwise, it's going to be gone. You know? Right, right. And, yeah. 
do you have any 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 final words that you that you that you would like to to say or, or communicate or or anything? That well, you I, I would say I'd just probably say thank you for inviting me and uh, having a discussion uh, with you. And uh, I, I think as we can provide any insight to uh, students around the planet to uh, work hard and be able to solve problems, uh, they should charge. That's what I would say. <laughs> and move forward. And move yeah. forward. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's uh, uh, you just have to take a step at a time. Very true. Yeah. It can, sometimes it might be political, so you can take a step at a time. You know, an engineering step or something. Sometimes we're told we can't do something because, um, for whatever reason. So, um, lots of problems to get around to address uh, real problems that we have on the, on the planet. But a precious place to go out and lay on your back in the, outside the limits and watch the stars. Yeah. And wonder. And wonder. I have a picture from one of my grad students, Tony. We, are, we have an observatory in Chile on the mountain there. And uh, I have a picture of him pondering the sunset on top of the mountain and uh, as a silhouette. And uh, I'll find it and send it to you uh, because uh, it's a good one to share with others. Um, it's, uh, it's we sit around and wonder what we should do. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you once again. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone for watching. Um, this was, I would say, a deep dive into the history of what subject like Juan, David, and I both enjoy talking about a lot, too. Um, we both admire NASA and having someone with us in this university who has worked there for so many years. Um, it was a pleasure talking to him. And um, there's just so much you can learn from them, right? Uh, the mistakes that were made in the past and the direction you can take based on what you did in the past and just making sure that you, you keep moving forward. That's, that's all that matters. Um, I usually say stay curious, but I want to add, keep wondering. Um, there's a lot to explore, uh, a lot to see, a lot to learn. Um, look back and don't forget looking forward. Thank you so much and we'll see you guys in the next one. <laughs>